Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms now wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Well, good morning, good morning. It's the eighth. 18th of December. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Have you heard? Have you heard? Elizabeth is having a baby. That's right. Elizabeth is having a baby. She would be, by my count, due in June. So now, again, I know, I know, you can't believe it either. Um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, I mean, you know them. They've been wanting to have a baby for so, so, so long. In fact, they'd given up trying years ago. And then guess what? Elizabeth is pregnant. Good news. Great joy. Hey, would you believe this one? Her cousin Mary. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mary. Yes, the young girl from Bethlehem. Yes, yes, the one betrothed to the carpenter, Joseph. Yeah, she's pregnant as well. Oh, yes, I know. I know. It is scandalous. But it's not the kind of scandal that you imagine. In fact, an angel of the Lord appeared to her. And the power of the Most High has overshadowed her, and she is due. She is due to deliver the Son of God who will deliver us all. Yes, really. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Luke chapter 1. I commend to you the entirety of Luke chapter 1 today. Where in the word are you? Let me, let me commend Luke chapter 1 as a good place to be, not just this time of year, but this is a good place to be today. Um, you can read the, the proclamation of, of the, the birth of John the Baptist, who's conceived in the womb of Elizabeth, who everybody thought was barren and never going to have a baby. And you can then read about the Annunciation, the, the, the conception of Jesus and the birth of Jesus foretold. And then you can read about um, these two women encountering each other. Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth. We pick up in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's house and greeted her cousin Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, The baby leaped in her womb. So that's the guy we know as John the Baptist later on in the story. But right now, he's a baby growing in the womb of his mother, Elizabeth. And he leaps in her womb. And she says, well, Scripture says she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, in a loud voice exclaims, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the child you will bear. Now, I would like to just pause there for just a moment. And if you've ever wondered if the Bible offers you a pro-life argument, if the Bible ever affirms the reality of 
not just human life, but very specific human life in the womb of a woman, you need look no further than Luke chapter 1. And these verses, today's Growing Your Faith verses of the day, Luke chapter 1, verses 41 and 42, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, it's a baby, it's a baby. We already know his name. His name is John, leaped in her womb. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit in a loud voice, exclaimed to Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. And we already know his name, by the way. His name is Jesus. If you ever, if you've ever wondered, does God recognize the reality of the person in the womb? Today's Growing Your Faith verses of the day are all the scripture you'll ever need. There's a a wonderful, I mean, I I think it's wonderful. Uh, You may argue with me this point. I get that. It's, you know, it's conversation time. Maybe you want to argue the point of whether or not the Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know, is, you know, theologically accurate enough to, I mean, because of course Mary knew. Mary knew a lot. There's a lot that Mary knew. No question about it. Um, what did she know? Well, at this point in time, she certainly knows that God has conceived a child in her womb. It's, it's, it's hard to believe, but it's true. And God gives her Elizabeth as evidence of that. And God also gives her Elizabeth to walk with her through this pregnancy and and into this life of being the mother of who I'm sure was a was a difficult child to raise. <laughs> like, right? What uh, was it like raising God? Like, right? Um, none of those questions are you know are are answered um, because there's a lot of pondering that Mary does throughout the course of her life, and so I, I commend Mary's story to you. But maybe instead of wondering what Mary knew, we should ask ourselves who Mary knew and who knew Mary well enough to know that she would be an excellent mother to the Son of God. Mary knew God, and God knew Mary. Mary was a faithful Jew from a faithful Jewish family in the line of David. And so was we consider the events unfolding in history in the days of Mary— We recognize a place, and we recognize a person and a people, Um, and we recognize historical events that took place in real time under real, in this case, Roman occupation. When we consider the reality of blood spilled again today in the place where Jesus shed his blood, it's important that we recognize the real people at the center of this historical event that we call Christmas. And so I just wanted to remind you of Mary today and Elizabeth and Zachariah and Joseph and John and Jesus. We're going to talk um, here in just a moment. Uh, We were going to talk in just a moment with a friend in Israel um, who serves as a, a paramedic, but we just learned that we're not going to be talking with her. So um, instead, you and I are going to continue talking about um, Mary and Elizabeth and Zachariah and Joseph and John the Baptist and Jesus. 
We're going to we're going to talk about these real people in the context of real history. Because that's real Christmas. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge and this is Faith Radio. All right, well on this uh 18th of December 2023, what you got planned? What you doing? What's uh what's happening in your life? Text line is open, 877-933-2484. Love to hear from you this morning, what you've been up to, what you got going on, what you've got planned. Just a little check-in with me. I'd appreciate that, 877-933-2484. So um, as you know, I was uh, away last week, Paul Perot. So grateful for you um, taking taking care of things and uh, having conversations with the people. Oh, you're you're welcome. Again, I return the ship to you only with a few minor dents. It's good. It's good. I, um, I, I didn't, I didn't worry one minute. <laughs> I had a wonderful time. Well, I had a wonderful time. I, when, when, when they say that, um, the Disney World is the most magical place on earth. Uh, I think they used to call it the happiest place on earth, but I think they have changed that. At least the big sign says it's the most magical place on earth. Um, so that's that was interesting to me. I would say that I saw a lot of unhappy people. Um, and that's not to say that it's not the happiest place on earth, but I will say there's a lot of unhappy people in the supposedly happiest place on earth, which is probably a good indicator to all of us that happiness is not the ultimate goal. And happiness is uh, not an experience that is devoid of um, of pain, of suffering, of crying, of angst, of uh, exhaustion, um of weather, of waiting. Yeah. Did I mention frustration? So yeah, it's, um, it was an interesting, interesting time. I have been to, uh, Disney world a number of times over the course of my life because I grew up in Tampa. And so I remember the days, uh, when you would go to Disney world and you would have these different colored tickets and you had to have a certain number of a certain color of tickets to ride, certain rides. And so you always ended up with a handful of tickets that were of a color that were for rides that you did not want to ride on. And so because people frequently came and stayed with us in Tampa, I was born in Indiana, so we have a lot of family there. And they would come and they would visit and they would go to Disney World. And so we had this bowl of Disney tickets because they were they were these little colored tickets and you would, you know, cobble them together in the right number with the right color to go ride the ride that you wanted to ride. So anyway, um, we never had extra tickets for It's a Small World because like, right, everybody wanted to ride on that one. So I don't really remember the rides that we always had extra tickets for, extra colors of extra tickets. And clearly we don't have those anymore because now, man, it's a totally different experience than it was when I was a kid. And there's obviously now multiple parks and we didn't do them all. Um, and I didn't even do all of the ones that others did. Um, in in the four days that we did parks, we walked 30 miles. And so that tells you that you need to do a little working out, a little walking working out, a little walk workout before you go. Like you should not just head to, you know, a four-day park hop unless you're ready to walk 30 miles in four days. I'm just saying. It's, uh, that should be your your workout in advance plan for going uh, on that kind of adventure. There you go. 
Um, let's see. Rick says, um, uh, this is my morning so far. Well, hello. Good morning, Rick. We're appreciative of that. Uh, Novia says that today is her son's 13th birthday. Well, happy birthday. That's fun. Uh, fun way to celebrate. Um, all right. Is this the same son that's in fourth grade? All right. I don't know. If it's the same son that's still in fourth grade uh, or maybe was in fourth grade doing virtual school, maybe now like in sixth or seventh grade. Well, there you go. Aha. Let's see. Uh, wish oh, wish you would have known you were going to Disney. Yeah. Well, there you go. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it, it, Rick's son drives the Kilimanjaro Safari. Well, I rode on the Kilimanjaro Safari at Animal Kingdom. Um, and so, yes, clearly want to know um, want to know more about all of that. Yes, I have all kinds of offers of could have hooked you up with. Yes, I got the after I started um, posting a few pictures about my trip, then other people came forward and were like, hey, you know, we have this hookup at Disney and we have this hookup. And let me just say that Carmen experienced Disney with the hoi polloi with the people that didn't get any kind of special treatment or fast passes and just chose to stand in line with everybody else. It was uh, quite an experience, and our grandkids learned a lot standing in line with everyone else. Um, so uh, let's see. Let's let's talk a little bit more um, about the experience of Mary and Elizabeth. So if you have not read Luke chapter 1 recently, let me just say that Well, I learned some things recently about places and spaces where this passage of Scripture is publicly read. So um, there is this thing called the candlelight procession that takes place at Epcot. And it's every, I don't know if it's every night, but it was certainly every night while we were there. So maybe it's every night in December. Um, and they read, I mean, they, they it, is, it is choirs and there is a, and it's orchestral music and it's candlelight and they read the proclamation of the, of the Christ. They read not just Luke chapter one, but they lead, read portions of Matthew. There, there is this proclamation of Jesus. And I was kind of surprised by that and don't mind telling you. And I was thrilled. Um, and I was delighted that so many people were packed in at, at a quite a late hour. It was just before the fireworks. And I mean, people aren't just filling this amphitheater, but you know, we're like 20 people deep outside of it. And, um, listening with rapt attention to the proclamation of the gospel, um, the, the story of the Christ child, God wrapped in human flesh, delivered into human experience in order that in Christ God might save us. It, it, it was extraordinary. So I don't mind telling you that hearing Luke chapter one read publicly, um, you know, at Epcot this past week, that, that was a delight that delighted my heart. Luke chapter one is also the very first, the very first thing that was uh, ever spoken over the radio. Did you know that? Um, that that might that might be something that um, that passed your attention. Let me find my let me find my notes on this really quick because I was uh, I was surprised to learn this, and and I was not aware. So back in the days when you know there was only. Uh, telegraphy. There was there was only the ability to communicate, you know, over little. That's probably not what it sounds like, but you get the idea, right? Like over, um, over the telegraph. They, you know, they had to put those dots and dashes 
um, together. And so uh, then there is the development of of the radio, but they didn't really have a good way. Well, they didn't really have in mind how they were going to test it. And so um, the the time comes around to to figure out how they're going to test it. And so the very first thing that they play over the radio, they play over the radio um, on an organ is Oh Holy Night. Did you know that? So um, I just found that extraordinary. And then the first thing that was spoken over those radio waves was Luke chapter one. And the guys that were operating those telegraph machines that were just used to hearing tick, 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 and making, you know, taking down those ticks, then, um, then instead heard a voice. So just imagine that for just a moment. Just imagine that you were listening for, you know, tick, 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 and, and suddenly instead what came over the speaker was a speaking voice reading Luke and you didn't know where it was coming from. So um, here's my note on it. Okay, in 1906, Reginald Fesden, 33-year-old university professor, former chief chemist for Thomas Edison, he did something that everyone thought impossible. Using a new type of generator, which we would now call a radio, he spoke into a microphone, and for the first time in history, a voice was broadcast over airwaves. He read from the book of Luke, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And he kept reading the proclamation of the gospel. Shocked radio operators on ships and wireless owners at newspapers used to Morse code heard over tiny speakers were suddenly interrupted by a speaking voice reading the gospel of Luke. They had no idea where it came from. When Professor Fezenden finished his reading, he picked up his violin and played Oh Holy Night, the first song ever played over the airwaves in the whole world. There is good news of great joy, and it is for all the people. It's just that all the people don't yet know it. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. You've heard it said that it only takes a spark to get a fire going. You've also heard it sung, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Well, what about hope? What about hope? What does it take to get hope sparked? And what does it take to get hope moving uh, around the world? I got a hope hat. I got a hope shirt. I got a hope bumper sticker. I know a ministry of hope. I know people who need hope. But how do we actually give hope? beyond bumper stickers and theme songs and ball caps. How do we help other people discover the hope that is real, substantial, and enduring? My guess is one reason you listen to this podcast is, well, it delivers hope. So as you're thinking about giving gifts this Christmas, have you considered giving others the gift of hope? You can give hope this season by supporting Faith Radio's Give Hope for Christmas campaign by sharing your story of hope at MyFaithRadio.com because hope begets hope. Pass it on. Well, I do, uh, I do love you, and I appreciate your willingness to jump on the text line with me this morning. So thank you so much to those of you who are jumping in on the conversation. You can do so as well, 877-933-2484. Text line is open. Cecile says, good morning. Excited to listen this morning, rejoicing in this scripture. Grateful uh, to love and serve a God who delights in my welfare. So Cecile 
uh, is in the Word of God this morning. She's in Psalm 35, verses 27 and 28. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Amen. Cecile, I am... I, I revel as well. I am grateful uh, to love and serve a God who delights in my welfare. That's just, that's just wonderful. Mary's got an update for us about, uh, about her prodigal. Um, we are, we've been praying a long time and right alongside Mary for, uh, for her prodigal child. Um, and there, there is always this prayer in Mary's heart. And I, I've been praying it with her that every time that her prodigal, um, is in jail, which is true again, um, with another treatment program to follow. Um, we, we, we pray together that this be a turning point. And so um, let's be praying with our sister Mary, who is so faithful, such a faithful um, participant in this program. Um, so Mary, we're with you, we're for you, and we are praying with you that indeed this time in jail and the treatment to follow would be a turning point, a, a turning point that um, that your sweet prodigal would um, find her way home to the Lord in a way that changes her life forevermore. And yeah, we also acknowledge that today is the day that this uh, this prodigal child became your child through adoption. And so thank you for being such a precious, precious mom to her. Kim, uh, Kim, good morning to Kim. Um, Kim says, Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas to you. Kim, I wish we were having tea and a ginger cookie. Let me just go ahead and say that out loud. Um, all right. Um, yeah. Jill says, Hey, I just caught the end of that Professor Fezenden story. Way cool. Please remind me of the source. Yes. Well, let me just go ahead and tell you, it's also going to be, um, in my Christmas day, um, uh, um, what do we call this thing that we do right here? The program. Um, because on Christmas, I'm going to actually tell you the whole story of the the carol, O Holy Night, which is where I had those notes because I was going to tell you that, you know, O Holy Night was the first song that was ever heard over the airwaves. And it was played by, you know, this violinist. And then he, but he also read from Luke chapter one, which is why I couldn't find it in my notes because it was really in my notes on O Holy Night. So there you go. In 1906, Reginald Fezenden was a 33-year-old professor. He was the former chief chemist for Thomas Edison. Um, and he's the guy who, for the very first time, flipped the switch on this newfangled thing we now call the radio. And, um, and he read Luke chapter 1, and then he played O Holy Night on his violin. Very cool. So, so, just so very cool. So, yeah, love being with you um, and love... Um, love connecting over cool things and having cool stories to tell about all the things that God has done over the course of human history. And it gives us a testimony, does it not? Do you have a favorite Christmas hymn? Oh, Holy Night, you know, Night Divine. This That is mine. Um, I I love, I just, I love it. Um, so many others. And I like this time of year when we get to sing so many songs in church that we know so well um, that just resonate with the need for salvation and the light that shines in the darkness and the joy that that comes to a world that is really pining. I don't know if you maybe are feeling that as well. 
Um, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Um, Like, we live in a world that's dark and deep in sin and much error. And we long for peace. And we long for the Prince of Peace. And we long for the light to shine in the darkness. And we recognize that some people continue to love darkness more than they love light. I think one of the things I appreciate about the rhythm of the season of Advent leading up to Christmas and then the season of Christmas, which, let me remind you, is not a day or even a couple of days. It's 12 days. It's a season. I encourage you to embrace that. Um, and, and then to recognize that Jesus is given to us, not just as a baby in a manger, but as a baby in a manger who will grow up to be a man who will die on a cross. And our Christmas tree is a reminder of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the beginning of Genesis and the tree that's given for the healing of the nations that's described in Revelation and the tree of the cross on a place called Calvary. Christmas is is the event is this hinge event upon which all of human history swings. The God of it all took on human flesh and condescended into human reality. He wrapped himself up that he might be poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. I, I just, I hope that this Christmas you reflect on the magnitude of God's love for you. Um, because it is deep and it is wide. There's a lot going on in the world. God does have the whole world in his hands, even if at some moments you question that. Um, God's got this. Our friend Daniel Bennett is going to join us next. Um, We're going to bring the mind of Christ to bear on some of the headline news of the day. Several of you actually sent me emails over the past week asking that we talk about what's going on with World Vision, so we're going to start there. We're also going to discuss... um, a case that the Supreme Court has agreed to take up. So since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June of 2022, um, making it possible for, um, you know, for states to uh, either allow or ban abortion, um, there's been a lot of focus on, quote, what's called medication abortion or chemical abortion or pharmaceutical abortion. It's also just known as the abortion pill. It's now used for more than half of all abortions in the United States. And that's now been true for three years running. Um, So did you get that? The majority of abortions in America, the majority of abortions in America are do-it-yourself at home with no doctor's visit. Women buying pills that terminate the life of their own child and then um, having to deal with the aftermath of all of that. So we're going to talk with Daniel Bennett about um, the abortion pill case. And yes, I'll make sure that we also make um, abortion recovery resources available. Just remember, we are everywhere.life. We are everywhere.life is where 
um, I want to direct you to turn. If you, um, you know, if you have experienced an abortion, um, which includes a lot of people, there there is hope on the other side um, of that. So Daniel Bennett up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, our friend Daniel Bennett is back from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog, forthcoming book. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Carmen. Okay, um, Bostock, some of us have slept since then. So could you, rem- <laughs> could you remind us what was the Bostock decision by the U.S. Supreme Court, and then why are we talking about it again today? So this was a case back in 2020 in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, your listeners would be forgiven if uh, this kind of went over uh, or, or slipped off their radar. But this was a really important case concerning employment law, but also uh, the role of sexual orientation and gender identity in civil rights regulations. So basically the case uh, decided that a private business or a, or a uh, a, a public business, a government business, government agency cannot fire someone uh, with the prevailing reason that uh, that person is in a same-sex relationship or is transgendered. And uh, in writing the decision, Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Trump, uh, is generally seen as one of the more conservative justices, wrote a decision that seemed to make an originalist reading which is a conservative reading and is in the conservative case for saying that the 1964 Civil Rights Act actually also includes sexual orientation and gender identity, even if that language is not found in the Civil Rights Act. So it's an interesting legal decision. I digress a little bit. The bigger implication is what does this mean for private businesses, particularly faith-based businesses, as well as nonprofits and, say, colleges and universities with religious underpinnings? who want to maintain some degree of freedom in their hiring and firing decisions. And we're still teasing that out uh, a few years later. It's going to take some time. Um, What do you, you know, do you have a forecast for us? Do you have a sense of what it means? Do you have a sense of how organizations are preparing? Yeah. No, I think that the biggest thing organizations are doing right now, particularly religious institutions, and this doesn't count churches, by the way, churches are almost certainly going to be exempt from these types of rules as they have been for for quite some time. But if you work at a religious nonprofit or even a private business uh, where there is a faith-based element to it, like, say, Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado, for example, I think the best thing they can be doing is being really deliberate and consistent in their... Uh, in in uh, stating their religious mission. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's some other conflicting Supreme Court decisions out there that allow employers a lot of leeway under what's called the ministerial exception to hiring. And so if you're a religious institution and you consider your employees part or at least essential to advancing that religious uh, mission for your institution, the courts have been pretty lenient in saying, yeah, okay, they should have more uh, flexibility in terms of who they hire and who they fire. But if you're a private business and you've only made passing references, lip service to your religious mission, and then cite it when it becomes a legal problem, I think that's a more difficult 
uh, and tenuous position to take. I think it's much more, uh, I guess it's a lot uh, easier and better, I think, for a legal standpoint to be forthright about these things, about why your relig- what your religious mission is and how your employees uh, further that. I, I think that your your language is really good, um, just in terms about our being overt. Like let's yeah. let's be overt in our um, religious mission, in our language, and then let's be consistent in um, in living into that. I think well, first of all, those are just those are probably just good uh, it's good counsel for us as Christians in all areas of life. The Supreme Court is uh, um, putting together its its agenda. Um, and questions about the abortion pill, um, is, you know, the, the, that conversation is going to be in front of the court. Tell us, um, you know, maybe give us a timeline here, a sense of things and tell us where we are and where you think we're headed. So it takes usually several months, at least from the time the Supreme court announces it'll be hearing a case, uh, to when it actually hears it. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe this, this this case is being heard in this current term, and it's going to be heard early or later in the, in the spring. Is that correct? Yes, that that's when it's slated. Okay. That's correct. Yep. Yeah, good. Okay, so 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 it's it a case of this magnitude won't be decided probably until the very end of the term, which is going to be mm-hmm. late June. So we have some time to try to look into the details of this, try to assess it out, watch the oral arguments, and. Uh, read the tea leaves of sorts. And this case is interesting, Carmen, in the sense that on the one hand, of course, substantively, this is an abortion case, right? And this is the first big abortion case that we've had since the Dobbs decision a couple of years ago, almost. Uh, But on the other hand, it's also a very technical uh, regulatory administrative law decision, which oftentimes uh, causes people's eyes to glaze over here. At the mm-hmm. heart of this case is this drug, mifepristone, which was approved by the FDA decades ago uh, for use in what, what pro-life advocates would call chemical ab- or medicated abortion. And the, the, the contention for the challengers to this drug is it's been uh, prescribed and utilized in a far broader degree than the FDA originally intended in its regulatory framework. Plus, there's a question of did the FDA adequately uh, look for side effects and ill effects of the drug when it made a more limited uh, availability ruling decades ago? So on the one hand, yes, this involves abortion. On the other hand, it's an incredibly technical administrative law decision, which is why it's possible that this case could reach a conclusion that maybe no one is satisfied with the pro-life movement or the the, the pro-choice uh, abortion rights movement. Uh, I'll be really interested in watching the oral arguments on this and see which position seems to be gaining traction. So just um, if you're listening, just so that you know some of the details here, mifepristone was first approved by the FDA in 2000. And at that point in time, um, the approval, the FDA approval required that the drug be prescribed in person over three visits to a doctor. So just think about think about a an FDA approval of a drug 
and then what's attached to that as the requirements. So there are some controlled substances, let's say, that you can only get a 30-day prescription of. That's an FDA requirement. And you have to get a doctor to re-prescribe those, sometimes um, as frequently as every 30 days, but sometimes as frequently as every 90 days, depending on the prescription. Like the FDA puts all kinds of restrictions on how medicines that are prescribed are prescribed. And so mifepristone was approved to be prescribed only in person and only over three visits to an actual doctor. Well, in 2016, the FDA eased that regimen. Um, and now people obtain mifepristone through telemedicine um, and through the mail with no visit at all to a physician. And so, I mean, my concern is that we now have hundreds of thousands. And that is, that's, that's what the numbers are telling us. Hundreds of thousands of women who are basically managing their own do-it-yourself at-home abortion having never seen a doctor, um, and using a regimen of drugs that not only um, takes the life of their unborn child, but then requires that they deliver that themselves, by right. themselves. It, it's a, it's a, it's, if you are a woman, if you are an advocate for women, this is a terrible, yeah. terrible thing. Um, and there's and, no and, way, yeah. there's no way to control um how far along a woman is in her pregnancy when she might use this. So even though yeah. the FDA approval allows for the drug to be used up to 10 weeks of pregnancy, there there's no way to control how long into a pregnancy a woman might use it. It's it's just right. it's it's just a horrible it, it's creating a horrible reality for women and obviously for their unborn ch- children. And this gets back to the to the convoluted nature of this case, unlike Dobbs, which centered on the constitutionality of abortion restrictions, right? And whether or not there is a right to abortion in the Constitution, which Dobbs struck down. This case involves more of a question of, did the FDA essentially circumvent its own administrative rulemaking process by easing the availability of mifepristone and allowing it to be uh, essentially prescribed in a much more lax way that you just described. So it's not as if the Supreme Court is going to say mifepristone is no longer uh, FDA approved. It's probably going to be more limited, but my guess is it would be more, uh, the ruling is going to try to get the FDA back to the drawing board of its original decision, which would make it harder to obtain, like you said, three visits over a certain number of days more controlled, uh, supervised. And you're right. Uh, if you're a women's rights advocate, this puts women in very dangerous positions um, and essentially trusts, you know, it's one thing to assume women know their bodies, but it's another thing to trust them to do a medical procedure when they don't have any training for it. No. And, you know, or the or the counseling that should be um, involved right. in all of this as well. All right. So if you're listening to this conversation and um, you're struggling like, we recognize that we are talking to a lot of post-abortive people. Um, mm. And I recognize that no matter who you are, you have an abortion story. Um, you have a mother, a wife, a sister, a daughter, a granddaughter who has had an abortion. You are a woman who has had an abortion or who has a mother, a sister, a daughter, a granddaughter, or a friend who has had an abortion. 
we recognize that. I recognize that every single one of us um, has an abortion story. We are everywhere. Um, that's the name of an organization that I would direct you to for some excellent resources. Um, we are everywhere dot life. We are everywhere dot life. Kay Kiefer, who heads up the organization, um, is a friend of this show. She's been on here a couple of times. She listens regularly. Um, so good morning, Fargo. We are everywhere dot life. Um, wonderful resources for you. There's also a video series called Surrendering the Secret. You can find that at surrenderingthesecret.com. Um, again, if the conversation about abortion this morning um, has just led you to recognize you you have some grief and some unresolved um, challenges uh, related to your own abortion story, we just encourage you to get the resources, avail yourself of the resources that are certainly available. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll continue our conversation with our friend Daniel Bennett in just a moment. If you're a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Our friend Daniel Bennett is here with us from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Daniel, let's talk about options for Christians as we engage in the political conversations of the day. Um, this is this is not you and I talking about particular parties or particular political um, issues. This is you and I talking about what are my options as a Christian in terms of engaging um, in the political conversations of the day? Because we all do it. We, we all do it. We just don't often do it thoughtfully. Like, so can you help me understand what my options are as a Christian? Yeah, certainly. You know, uh, I think the temptation for uh, for a lot of us, and I put myself in this basket sometimes, uh, more often than not, is to essentially withdraw, uh, retreat, not in a surrendering way, but almost saying, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't really want to uh, talk about this, uh, even in person with a friend or with a neighbor or with someone sitting next to me in church. Uh, I don't like confrontation or conflict, so I'm just not going to invest in this. Uh, it's easier for me to do this. I think the flip side to that is to say, I'm going to become an expert on everything that I see uh, on social media, that I read about in the newspaper, that I hear about on the on the television or the radio, and attempt to uh, align everything that I read about with a particular understanding of how my faith informs the public square. And, you know, certainly this is something that I would, you know, encourage people to do thoughtfully, but it can also be a little... Uh, it, it can also be extremely tricky when you try to be an expert on everything, you end up being an expert on on nothing. Uh, so, I mean, those are the two uh, pendulum swingings. I think it's a lot more uh, effective for us, particularly in our interpersonal relationships. And this is where I think your experience comes in, Carmen, is to really focus on having intentional conversations with people, not necessarily to provoke, not necessarily to change minds or to have a debate, but rather if you are having a conversation with a friend and something about politics or government comes up that implicates your faith in a, in a real way, try to understand, right? Try to have a conversation, not for the sake of changing minds, but saying, hey, look, I really, this is fascinating to me because I have a different perspective on this. 
but I want to know where you are here. I want to know where you're coming from. And this is especially true if you're talking to another believer, right? Mm -hmm. I don't, I haven't thought about it that way before. And, you know, frankly, you could have a conversation where at the end of it, you say, well, I think you're wrong, (laughs) but I very much want to understand where that is coming from. And, you know, that's not the culture war mentality. You want to be able to to win the debate and hang that on your on your mantelpiece. But for us as Christians, we should understand that that shouldn't be our goal, right? We should be able to be in community with one another with whom we disagree and really seek to understand why people in our communities disagree with us and how we can better approach these issues in a Christ-like way. This is not relativistic. It's not downplaying the seriousness of the issues or the stakes or the truth, but it does allow us to have good, uh, hearty and rich relationships with people with whom we might disagree. Uh, I got called a socialist in Sunday school. <clears throat> sure. And and I, <laughs> I, I, I looked at the woman who, you know, threw the barb across the room and I said, OK, so uh, I was I was recounting a parable of Jesus. So help me understand how you got from a conversation about a parable to a a a political and you know I mean you know she's likening me to you know whoever the guy is in Venezuela. I was just like I'm right. I, and I and I thought to myself, wow, we went from a conversation that I thought was that I mean apolitical. We were not talking. It was not a political conversation. But that is where her heart and mind, like, obviously, she was having a different conversation in her heart and mind than we were having in the room at the time. And I think that's part of this, Daniel, that I'm trying to figure out just just personally. I'm trying to figure out how not, um, I don't want to, I don't want to be the person that um, is always bringing the challenging conversation. And yet I do find that that happens like, right. It, because I'm trying to talk about things from a kingdom perspective, because I'm trying to, um, be an ambassador of the King and the kingdom. So because I'm, I, I think I, I think I talk about things in a way that people are either like, what is she talking about? Which brings them to lean in. And actually then we get into a good conversation or, they're hearing through a very, very toxic um, uh, filter yeah. that makes them hear everything. They hear everything as if it is political, and I, that's that's what I'm trying to navigate in in real life. This is the key. I think you hit the nail on the head, and that's actually what I was going to bring up. Is and this can be dangerous for for us too, right? I'm talking about you and me. When we're so engaged in the issues of the day and so focused on, especially as we lead into a presidential election, right, policy debates, who's the better candidate, who are candidates we could consider voting for, but not really. It's really tempting to hear any language through the lens of political implications to the point where you could be sitting in church and the pastor could be recounting Jesus's uh, telling of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you could technically hear that through the lens of, say, someone's, maybe you heard a clip on the news uh, of someone citing Mm. Jesus to advance a Mm -hmm. particularly progressive policy. And you say, whoa, whoa, where is my pastor coming from here? Or or vice versa, right? When the pastor could very well just be saying, Jesus said, 
you know, Jesus told the Good Samaritan parable absent from our political context today. So how we hear things and yeah. what we make of those things is, is super important. You, you said exactly what I was going to say. That's so good. That's so good. Hey, that's Daniel Bennett. Thank you so much, brother, for being with us. Let's be listening for what people are actually saying. And let's be filtering it all through the Word of God. We've got another hour together of Mornings with Carmen. You can always text me, 877-933-2484. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.